Welcome to Let's Face the Facts. I'm David Almeida, and I'm your host for this rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. I'm an actor in Orlando, Florida, and every week I invite an actor or artist friend to watch an episode with me. Join us as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show. Hey guys, welcome back. It's another week, another show. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. My guest this week is Daryl Pickett. Daryl's been on the show before. He is an actor, a writer, a former Imagineer. He is a musician. He does he does everything. It's crazy how talented this guy is. Daryl recently left the Central Florida area to relocate back to his homeland of Albuquerque. We're going to be talking about that uh, at the top of the show and uh, catch up with him and see what he's been doing since the move and since the pandemic. So, let's get right to it. This week, Daryl and I watched Season 6, Episode 18, called With a Little Help from My Friends. And the original air date was January 30th of 1985. I think we're ready to jump on in. Let's face the facts with Daryl Pickett. Well, welcome back, three-peat guest, Daryl Pickett, all the way from Albuquerque. Hi. I took a left turn. (laughs) I was thinking of that, too. Did any of us know anything about Albuquerque other than the Bugs Bunny joke? Well, I did because I was born here and lived here sporadically in my young childhood. Well, details. I mean, but it, it did mean it did mean that, you know, when you come home in the afternoon and watch the old Warner Brothers cartoons in syndication that, you know, all, me and all of my friends would feel special every time he said that. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Even though it was always the left turn at Albuquerque was what got him lost. That was the that was the fuck up. That's right. We were aware we were we were the wrong turn place. He didn't <laughs> want to go. He wanted to go to Pismo Beach. Well, we are uh, getting ready to discuss season six, episode 18, called With a Little Help from My Friends, which had an original air date of January 30th of 1985. So uh, I I will say that this is my first Edna's Edible episode. Oh, that's right. Both of my previous appearances were season four, and, you know, we were at the school still. Uh, But this is my second of the three episodes I've done, this is my second very special episode. Oh, you consider this one to be a very special episode, do you? Oh, oh absolutely. Because okay. we're dealing with a topical thing and and in a very serious, serious manner, which which I will respect and I will not snark. <laughs> oh, it's okay. I'll do that enough for both of us. <laughs> the show was written by Stuart Wolpert and Deidre Fay. They've written a bunch of shows in the past. They are... Uh, regulars in the writer's room. They've been on board for a while now. And it was directed by John Boab, the new in-house director, pretty much going forward. Most uh, episodes, the vast majority of future episodes will be directed by him. And uh, yeah, I guess it's funny. It didn't even occur to me that this had the very special episode demarcation because I think of the girls as being old now. I think of that as like a teen thing. Yes. And it, yeah, that's true. Um, I guess just it, it was after act one, there's no more laughs. 
Oh, yeah, that's right. It does. It takes a very <laughs> dramatic turn, that's for sure. So I think that's what made it seem like, you know, a little out of the ordinary uh, that you were, you know, whatever episodes bookended on either end, I'm guessing they're a little more lighthearted. I don't know, though. You tell me. Um, no, they have been definitely more lighthearted. I was last here uh, in, uh, for episode, let's see, episode 17 of season, season four, which was Magnificent Obsession. That was in February of 2020, the year that dare not speak its name. So, uh. <laughs> so, so really just before everything went. Uh, yeah, that's right. February, we, when, we met at my sister's house. We hung out there because that was like a good uh, midway point for us. And yeah, and it's funny, it was um, Magnificent Obsession was another one where Blair was at a, a an insanely important crossroads with a boyfriend. Yeah, with, with a boyfriend, that's right. In, in that case, one who was just, uh, you know, she was simping over a guy that didn't have the time of day for her, so. Yeah, and we yeah. we had a lengthy discussion about what was it? Why this guy? What was there going on? And how uh, my rewrites, I, I wanted to correct for uh, whatever it was that made this guy so special and unique to to make Blair so insecure and to doubt her own desirability. I remember that because I really, I spent most of the episode just, just saying, Blair, whoa, you, any, any guy in the community is going to be delighted to pay so much attention to you. But yeah, it, it didn't think... make sense. I recall that. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely be fixing that when we send my notes back in the time machine. Absolutely. Prior to that, my first appearance was back in November of 2019 for The Source. That was uh, season four, episode two. Oh, the abortion episode. Of course. That was your very special. Holy shit. Yep, my very special episode, which tackled the issue of abortion head on by completely skirting it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So. And we're going to have another connection to very special episode coming up uh, when mm. we start talking about the uh, actors in this show. Oh, excellent. So, uh, listeners, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as always, Daryl, going to put you on the spot and ask you if you would please, for my tens of listeners, give us a one to two sentence synopsis of the show we've just watched, similar to a listing you might see in a TV guide. Okay. So I would say, um, is Blair's rich boyfriend making her wait around so he can help out a friend in need? Or is he just hoping to score some nose candy? Oh, nice. I love the term nose candy. <laughs> I guess because I love candy. If you presented it to me as nose candy, I'd probably yeah, do Coke. Well, you know, when we were kids, I mean, when we were kids, there were guys who would dare you to snort pixie sticks. Oh, or the, <laughs> or the powder out of pixie sticks and then snip the other end so it was a straw. Oh. I did not ever do that, but I had dumb ass friends who did. Wow. What, what happened to them? <laughs> they went to the nurse's office, probably. I mean, they went, ow, oh my God, that hurts. Why did I do that? Yeah, because we know from getting a milliliter of water up your nose yes. and on the folds inside your nasal cavity is insanely painful. So the idea of oh, sugar, sugar is so rough. I mean, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. 
you know, compared to Coke, you know, Coke, you know, is kind of more like I, I hear, I do not have experience, but Coke is more like powdered sugar, not like granular sugar. Fuck. Right. Oh, pixie sticks were even painful consumed the proper way. Just just against your tongue and the roof of your mouth. It was kind of like gritty and tastes good. Kind of. Yeah. It's just raw sugar with a tiny amount of tart flavoring. Yeah, I never was a pixie stick person. That was never my thing. Chocolate has always been the number one love of my life when it comes to junk food, sweet food, any food really. It's got to be chocolate for me. So just straight up sugar, sweet for the sake of sweet, eh, never was never was my thing. Sure. Um, I think I, when I was maybe between the ages of 9 and 12, uh, I really liked fruit flavored very sweet fruit flavored things but then like i like overnight was like oh no i don't like those anymore and chocolate i think for many of us chocolate just becomes a a lodestone a guiding star (laughs) (laughs) so true so true So I think we're ready to jump on in and start with the actual synopsis here uh top of show new weird thing just started last week this weird opening title of Ryan Cassidy as Kevin. Right. <laughs> I mean, we got the music. Music happened last week, and we've had the music sporadically throughout the season. It's not yet set. It will go away and come back. And then okay. starting in season seven, it is there to stay through the end of the run. Very but, good. Uh, but now this new thing is, we also have Mackenzie Aston as Andy. Sure, which was a, a total surprise to me. Uh, yeah, and Andy will be on the show until the end of its run. He's here kind of spottily right now. They're still kind of figuring it out. And I talked about this last week where the Ryan Cassidy thing, they clearly were planning on him being there a while. They yes. Had, they had signed him up for a number of episodes and... Uh, I don't know if they thought it was a get or if it was because of his name, they had to give him this type of billing versus billing in the end credits. But it's like, okay, we have the Celebrity Children Clearinghouse, son of (laughs) Jack Cassidy and Shirley Jones, Ryan Cassidy, son of John Astin and Patty Duke, Andy. Yeah, that is, that is remarkable. And, uh, and Andy, I mean, Andy is, I mean, being significantly younger, it was, oh, they have a kid on the show now? Yeah. I, I I assumed I must have missed a lot of intro episodes. Like, is he is he somebody's cousin or is he, no, who is, why is he here? He is literally a kid who lives nearby who showed up when they said they needed uh, another employee. They needed a man to help with the lugging and the heavy lifting. And the joke was, oh, this kid showed up and he wants to do it. And well, he... <laughs> didn't so much prove himself as being uh, the brawn of the operation, but he did have a little bit of brains and uh, he is cute. He's still finding his way. What he will grow into is a really fun, sassy, wisecracking uh, queen. He's only 11 here and he still is reading as a a child. And he's at one point he's standing next to Mindy Cohn and, Mindy Cohn is like five two at best. He is yeah. tiny. He's still little a kid. child, little kid, not a kid, little kid. Yeah. So I I presume that the previous episode that introduced him didn't bring up child labor laws or anything. 
Oh, fuck no. <laughs> oh, you're so cute, Daryl. That's precious. Yeah. But we have those two titles and the music at the top of the show. So already it's like, all right, things is different. Shit's changing. What is that? But um, yeah, we start off the episode with Blair practicing Italian into a tiny little compact mirror. And then in come Joe and Kevin. And it's kind of a, what are you doing? And Blair is like, well, Nick, the new boy she's been dating, uh, he's coming over and he thinks I'm sexy when I roll my R's. And Joe brings Kevin up to speed that they met in Italian class. So yeah. this boy, Nick, is a fellow student over at Langley College, where Blair and Joe are both sophomores. Now, the plans <laughs> for the evening are that Joe and Kevin are going to two different things. <laughs> and we've got this sort of uh, exchange program where... Kevin has agreed to go with Joe to hear Gloria Steinem lecture at Eastland. And in exchange, she is going to be going to a surfing movie with him in the afternoon. That was one of my favorite things because, first of all, Gloria Steinem is just such a funny idea for a date. Yeah. Um, already. I mean, I know it's supposed to kind of fit Joe's priorities and... and Lesbianism. <laughs> right. Let's let's just go there. Let's just do it. Sure, absolutely. But then I I thought it was uh, first of all I was trying to figure out what movie he was alluding to. What surfing movie is it? And when they eventually when they get back and describe it, I'm like, oh, it's not an existing one. They're not alluding to any actual movie. Uh, no. Yeah, oh 80s, God, no. The '80s had a couple of dumb surfing comedies that I don't think anyone remembers. So I was trying to figure out what movie did they actually go to. And then when she describes it after they've returned, it's like it starts off on one continent and then goes to another. And it sounds, I mean, that was, there was enough specificity to that that I was like, is, is that a real movie? No. Yeah, the, the writers, they clearly just made it up for, uh, for the purposes of this episode. And there was nothing funny that was actually in the theaters that they could have referenced. Um, but they have in the past referred directly to the Karate Kid, to um, Never Seen Ever Again, the sure. Bond movie. They've referred to actual films before, but this, I don't think so. This wasn't a thing. It's literally a chance for Ryan Cassidy to have the joke about what it's not just a surfing movie. It's a deep and probing analysis into this and that and the other thing. <laughs> and I hear there's some gnarly tunes. <laughs> Oh man, yes. So yeah. uh, now has was surfer dude kind of a consistent character trait for, for this character as long as he stuck no, around? Not at all. No. We've only had him one previous episode, and he was introduced to us as the son of a man that uh, Edna, Mrs. Garrett, had dated in high school. I assume his father wasn't played by Jack Cassidy or anything like that. It was not. It would have been lovely. No, it was played by um, I think Dick O'Neill was the character was the actor's name. But um, just a well-known character actor. But the thing that they did reveal about uh, Kevin is that Kevin lives for the ski slopes. He's a skier, loves skiing. It's all he wants to do. The dad is like, he won't settle down and I'm trying to help him understand about responsibility and all he cares about is skiing. Is there any mention of skiing in this episode, Daryl? There is not. Okay. Just, Your Honor, let the record show. Uh, 
But here's the other weird thing we got going on. When we met him last week, Blair had just been going through uh, a breakup, uh, like a one-date breakup, and very quickly she bounces back when he walks into the store. And the other girls are also kind of flirty and hanging on him, Natalie, of course, in particular. But Blair even went so far as to help him shovel the sidewalks last week. So they are clearly setting up Blair being interested and attracted to him, but the episode was not about that. The episode was about Ted, his dad, and Edna, or as I like to call them, Tedna. Tedna. <laughs> so that wasn't there. But uh, tell me, isn't it a little bit weird that Joe and he are doing this, you know, it's like an exchange program? Why in right. the world would you ever do a we're doing these two things. One thing is something I like. The other thing is something they like. That's a dating thing, isn't it? That is a very dating thing. That is not a casual friend or guy who just started hanging around or whatever. Uh, yeah, that that I then I thought. So I was like, oh, did they give Joe a boyfriend? Yeah, that's it's weird. And And honestly, there's nothing wrong if they decided to do that. But there really is nothing specifically said about it all we know is just that joe and kevin are doing things together and i don't mean that as a euphemism no no they're they're hanging out hanging out but hanging out uh, doing things that only one of them likes at any given time yeah which that's dating ladies and gentlemen yeah it is and if you're a millennial we are saying hanging out that does not mean sex i know by today's standards it does often but um no, this is non-sexual hangouts. Um, even to the point where uh, one of the two of them says to Blair, well, we're doing this stuff, but we're going to be going to lunch first. Maybe you and Nick, this boyfriend of whom we speak, could join us. So it's kind of sort of a double date here. Yes. Okay. But yeah, Blair is crazy about this boy, Nick. I, I couldn't help, given that there's already, uh, it's not the actor playing Nick, but that the show now contains uh, two degrees of separation from the Adams family. I thought that was interesting that Nick was being driven crazy by Blair's Italian pronunciation and almost wanted to start kissing her arm like uh, Gomez. Oh, <laughs> I never <laughs> thought of that. When Blair speaks Italian, he just like, oh, like he just turns to and, jelly. Yeah, and oh. he, he, begs, he begs her to roll just one R. Yeah, that's her. right. And then gives him a little, and he just like jumps across the table at him. Yeah. And (laughs) uh, guess what, Daryl? We are not two degrees away from the Adams family. The facts of life is one degree away. One degree away. Because there was an episode where Mrs. Garrett and Joe went on a quick jaunt uh, to Atlantic City one weekend this previous summer of 84. And there was a lounge singer playing the piano in this piano bar in a casino it was John Aston. Oh my. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yes, there you go. Yeah. And there are some stories somewhere that I think that Mackenzie might have been hanging around on set with him. And that might have planted the seed in someone's head of, well, if we were thinking of adding a kid, there was that kid and he's, uh, he might be talented based on his parents. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure if that's something we've in, imposed or inferred uh, falsely about it, but. Um, we need to, to stop a moment here, though, and talk about Blair's romantic life. Because later on in this episode, 
Nick does state explicitly that he and Blair have been a couple for three months. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which made me think, have I missed that many episodes? <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing, Daryl. Last week, she was falling all over herself, kind of flirting with Kevin, this guy, uh, right after she had been dating a boy. And like I said, she was mad because he broke up with her, but it had only been one date. So there had been a boy and then a crush on Kevin. And now somehow three months have passed. And uh, but but even before that, just three weeks ago, Daryl, Blair was acting up and treating Mrs. Garrett like dog shit because she was so devastated over having to break up with Cliff, the boy that she was dating at the end of last season mm -hmm. and was engaged to and even spent the summer on his family farm in Iowa. Right. At the same time, Mrs. Garrett was having a romantic walk along the boardwalk in Atlantic City with John Aston. <laughs> So uh, Blair's romantic life is really very, very spastic, is a good word. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's complicated. It is complicated. I feel like coming up down the pike, at one point, Joe starts to work at like uh, a help center, like a kid's place, like, you know, kind of in a social work capacity as she is proceeding through college and the... Um, the community center is being run by uh, a guy played by Paul Provenza, stand-up comic Paul Provenza. Remember him? Oh, yes. And she and he have some sort of chemistry. But then within a few episodes, Blair is dating him. And then it becomes a thing of, well, Blair, you're a rich girl and you're going to about to enter law school. And this guy is a social worker who has a low-wage job at a community center. And you know, kind of a other side of the tracks thing. But I'm not sure if I'm remembering that correctly. Listeners, I'm sure, will know and be able to answer and comment uh, to verify this. But I'm pretty sure that Paul Provenza, when he appears, I think season eight or nine, that initially it looks like he's to be with Joe, like a workplace romance. And then very quickly and unexpectedly, suddenly he's with Blair. Uh, so uh, please, uh, listeners, my tens of listeners, please chime in and verify or nullify that if you would. Um, Absolutely. But I, I, I'm going to lose sleep if we don't very soon get to the crux of this episode, which is cheesecakes. Cheesecakes. Oh, oh, oh we're getting to the cheesecakes right now, Daryl. Because... Oh, um, oh, number one, I can't, I can't get there yet. I still have to stop with one oh. other thing. Gloria okay. Steinem, you're right. It is a little bit ridiculous to have Gloria Steinem lecturing at Langley College. I mean, Langley is a prestigious school. You know, it is on par with Wellesley and Smith. And it's not that far out of New York City. And she is based out of NYC. But right. here's the problem. She's already spoken at Langley. In, in canon with the show. Yes, 11 weeks ago. Season six, episode seven, this season, Taking a Chance on Love, part two. One of the things was we're all going to the Gloria Steinem uh, lecture and Joe wanted to go, but then she had an obligation to look after the child of the older man she was dating. I forgot, I saw that and I forgot that Gloria Steinem was name checked. Yeah, no, Gloria Steinem was named. So uh, 11 weeks ago, she lectured, it must've been a good lecture. They decided to have her back so soon. <laughs> I guess so. Uh-huh. So then, 
Yes, here we get to the cheesecakes because Mrs. Garrett is really perturbed because her freezer is broken again. And by again, Daryl, the freezer was broken previously. Season six, episode eight, only wow. 10 weeks ago. 10 weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got a problematic freezer here. She may need to replace that shit. Just saying. I think, I'm thinking so. So, yeah. So, so, so we, we got to unload the cheesecakes before they go bad. Yes. The repairman... They say the repairman won't make a house call on a Sunday. Sunday. <laughs> I'm sorry, a house call. Ugh. <laughs> so if you took the freezer and put it in the back of your truck and took it to his place, he would. What the? F a house call? That's a doctor term. I mean, <laughs> that's just so. What? And and now I don't I don't know having not examined this set here for long. I mean, we would be talking, are we talking like a standing case freezer or a walk-in freezer or a small, you know. In an in industrial size, bigger yeah. than a standard refrigerator freezer. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, no, no, it's, it's like, it's an appliance. It's in the kitchen and it ain't moving. Not working. So it's, it's ridiculous. Number one, this whole thing about, uh, won't make a house call on a Sunday, as opposed to he just, they don't work on Sunday. Right, period. they're closed. Yeah. So then, <laughs> then one of them says, you have to, oh, so you're going to have to wait until Monday. And it's like, oh, Mrs. Garrett had made six dozen cheesecakes for an event that got canceled. And so they were sitting in the freezer. She was going to sell them later, but now she has to wait till Monday. I don't know. I don't know if those cheesecakes will make it until Monday. And they keep saying Monday. And I'm like, it's Sunday. Why is nobody saying tomorrow? Why is what? It's like, I'm, have I taken crazy pills? And and was it six dozen cheesecakes? Is that six right? Dozen six dozen cheesecakes. Yes, that is a lot of cheesecakes. And I didn't see that there was much stock of anything else, even things like cookies that might not require refrigeration. I didn't see anything else in the case, really. Um. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know what else. They certainly would have, I imagine, had other foods that would have also suffered. But the immediate acute problem we were dealing with were these these cheesecakes. Um, it, I, I'm just going to say it. It's a cheesecake. You couldn't pull it out of the freezer and put it into the fridge for 24 hours and then put it back in the freezer? Really? Yeah. I mean... I mean yeah, now, if she's lost refrigeration also, if it was, not, I can neither freeze nor refrigerate and everything's going to go bad, then, yeah. you know, having a sale, <laughs> having yeah. an emergency sale, on, everything must go in the next two hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Uh, so what is decided is that these cheesecakes, which, by the way, she says cost them $6.50 a piece to make. That is going to come up later. $6.50 a piece to make. So I'm going to start with doing some math here. Uh, $472 is what she stands to lose. That that sounds like if, if that is her uh, wholesale cost, then either these are very expensive cheesecakes in $85 or her profit margin was already going to be extraordinarily thin. Yeah, $472 by today's standards in 2021 is $1,167.56. Okay. 
meaning that each $6.50 cheesecake is $16.08 cost. That's expensive. You can buy a cheesecake yeah, at Costco that, for that. Yeah. She's not going to make that money back, freezer or no. Yeah, that's weird. She was, I mean, clearly she was charged, whatever that function was, she was charging them some bank for the bulk amount or something. I don't know. Right. Either that, Daryl, or it could be that Charlotte Ray might have fucked up her line because later when they're calculating what they made, I believe they say, okay, well, what we made was they sold them at $250 a piece. So it's like, why? I'm sorry, we're getting ahead of ourselves. They decide it's Sunday, we're going to open the store and move these fucking cheesecakes and not yep. lose this money. All hands on deck, call out the troops, call Andy at home. He's going to get some signs hung up. And that's what is going on here. That's kind of the B story here. But the thing is, when they come back at the end and are calculating, and this scene is cut from syndication, by the way, Daryl, so you may not have actually seen it. They do say $2.50 per cheesecake. They wouldn't have opened up the store to sell them at a $4 loss. Oh, no. <laughs> It, it's it's weird. I'm wondering if maybe there was, I mean, it happens. Charlotte Ray might have flubbed a line and no one noticed or, sure. you know, something went wrong with the other take. But whatever the money situation is, something ain't right there. And we will we'll come back and circle back to that uh, a little bit later on. But then finally we meet Nick, the boyfriend of Blair's. And it's played by actor Thomas Byrd, B-Y-R-D. And uh, he has a lot of other TV credits. Give me a break. Fantasy Island, Alice, Family Ties, Newhart, Murder, She Wrote. And uh, I don't see any credits after the year 2000. But uh, hmm. in the year 2000, he was on two episodes of Frasier. Oh. So uh, oh. that's pretty cool. Uh, but here's the thing. Thomas Bird, this character of Nick... He has never been on The Facts of Life before. He's never been on the show before. He will not return later. We will never see him again, even though this is <laughs> such an important relationship. But this actor has been on the show before. Mm, that's right. A, a little over two years ago, in season four, episode five, called Different Drummer, he played Leo, a very handsome, but um, I think the term is mentally challenged, developmentally disabled uh, yes. boy that Blair starts dating. And uh, th there's a big question of why is Blair dating him? And uh, the episode is of note because it is the episode where they use the R word to describe him multiple, multiple times. Oh, oh my. Yeah. Justin and I watched that one. That was his first episode ever of the facts of life and we both were not prepared for how often they drop the r word you know with no irony with no malice and that daryl i believe qualifies as a very special episode i yes i would say so yeah but it was also as typical of those episodes it was problematic because they're questioning what Blair was doing and why she was dating it. They were acting like Blair might catch it from him. Oh my God. Oh no. I shit you not. Oh, you dropped your iPad. That was so funny. I made my iPad fall over. <laughs> 
So as they're getting and preparing for all hands on deck with these cheesecakes, Mrs. Garrett comes out with a bunch of pink boxes and we do have uh, Kevin running into her and her dropping the boxes. So you're like, oh God, is Kevin going to be the clumsy guy? Please, please no. And and also I, I, I wondered to myself, clearly they were a bunch of empty pink boxes just from the way they landed. But I, I did have a moment thinking to myself, now, do they want me to think the cheesecakes are in those boxes and that they just got ruined? If so, you got to really commit to that side gag and give yeah. us the cake splatter. But no, those boxes look very empty. Yeah, they, they were empty and they fell empty. It had to be that they were empty because uh, they did sell all of them. We do know that and the quantity is not um, compromised. That's a deleted scene that was not in the syndicated version. Ah. So while all this is going on, Kevin invites Nick to lunch and Nick is like, oh yeah, Blair and I would love to join you for lunch, but I've got a friend coming by to drop off some class notes. So, um, you know, let me wait and meet him and then we'll, we'll catch up to you there. Great, cool, terrific. So then we dissolve to later and cut from syndication. Mrs. Carrot's wrapping up a cheesecake, selling it to a customer. Thank you, call again, tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody on the street. Well, now this is a shame because for an episode that had so little Charlotte Ray, so little Mrs. Garrett, I wish that they had left that in because I, yeah, it, it <laughs> is interesting that her stuff is what, what ends up on the cutting room floor here. Uh, so this is the point where Nick asks Blair to speak Italian and just roll an R and he plays up that it drives him crazy and uh, they interact a bit and honest to God, he is so handsome, so cute, super charming great performance and they write him really well so that we are on board. I am team Nick all the way right now. Aren't you? Oh, absolutely. Especially as they established that he was willing to even professing that he didn't like cheesecake, happy to buy some cheesecake. Oh, I love him so much. <laughs> uh. So then uh, Andy does come in so uh, they must have called him at home. And uh, so he is putting up signs all over town that say, Edna's cheesecakes are the cheesiest. And uh, <laughs> he's just being adorable, but being a kid. But still, he's a contributing member of the family. You got to give him credit that he is rolling up his sleeves as he can. Uh, yeah, I like it. I like him. Andy's, Andy's okay by me right now. And I am definitely predisposed to hate any cast additions to this show. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, I will say we're, we're coming up on it. That his, his signs did provide my biggest laugh moment. Yeah, we're uh, talking the sandwich board later? Yes, we are. Yeah. So then uh, Nick gets a phone call. It's this guy, Steve, again. And he's like, oh, Steve uh, said he'd be right over, but he's running late. And then Blair is like, well, just leave the notes with Mrs. Garrett or somebody. He can pick them up then. We, we were going to be late for lunch. They're waiting on us. And so Nick confesses, I'm not being honest. Steve, he needs to borrow some money from me. And Blair does say, why didn't you tell me? And he says, because then you'd accuse me of being a pushover again. And this is a little playful thing that they have where it's like, he's not just a nice guy. He's a nice guy to a fault, Daryl. Right. And and she even says, she she's like, you know, yeah, well, you are. And I like that. Mm, yes. 
So they call ahead. The, the, the plan is we're going to call ahead to the restaurant, get a hold of Joe or Kevin and tell them we're not going to make it to lunch. We're stuck waiting here. We're going to go on and meet him at the theater where I guess they're going to see the surfing movie. Yeah. So then Tootie and Natalie come in with this old priest named Father Donovan. And he brings the joyous news that he was on his way to a church bazaar. The back uh, door of his station wagon flew open and he lost a whole bunch of pies. And oh my goodness, is there any chance you have anything that I could purchase to bring to the church bazaar? And wow, as if it's like a miracle. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Garrett offers him cheesecakes. He is thrilled, and we get, uh, I think we get prayer hands and a heavenward silent thank you. Yes, and also uh, a sort of a knowing look between Natalie and, is, was Natalie and Tootie that brought him in? Yeah. Yeah, they sort of give each other a, a kind of a knowing look. I think it was supposed to be, hey, that worked out nice. But I swear, when I saw them look at each other, I thought, Oh no, is the crux of this episode going to be that they sabotaged the priest <laughs> to create the need? <laughs> it looked like a conspiratorial look. You're, then- you're not wrong. And here's the weird thing. When they come in, they bring them in. They're just like, oh, here, Mrs. Garrett, someone we want you to meet. And yeah. so when she suggests the cheesecakes, he's like, oh, that would be wonderful. It's like if Natalie and Tootie already know the situation and that's why they're bringing them in, why wouldn't the line have been, uh, the girls tell me you may have something that could help? Like, right. the, it's like, why would, why they, you're in a jam? Walk with us over to a store. La, la, la. <laughs> it, is, it is structured weird from a, a dialogue standpoint. It really is, which made me wonder if later, you know, they weren't going to be getting a, a stern but loving talk about how you, you can't just sabotage <laughs> a, a church's uh, desserts uh, in favor of our own. That was yeah. not at all. Yeah, I could see somebody actually taped the handle of my station wagon door open and somehow a napkin with the Edna's Edibles logo was right nearby. Something incriminating. That would have been kind of awesome, but that would have taken us into a whole other realm of... That would have been a far more whimsical episode than this ends up being. (laughs) But we have to pause and talk about Father Donovan is played by veteran character actor John Engel. Probably he is best known for playing the role of Edward Quartermain in 486 episodes of General Hospital between 1993 and his death in 2012. I'll be darned. Yeah, huge. So that came after this, because this is 1985. Um He has 105 credits in a 29-year career. Wow. And 2012 is when he died. So I'm doing the math going, wait a minute, but only 29 years? He does not look like a young man here. Here's the deal. He was born in 1928. His IMDB credits start in 1983. So he didn't start acting until he was 55 years old. There's hope for me yet. Yeah, exactly. But I'm, previous to that, I don't know, you might you might have to do some other extra work here. Because previous to that, thankfully, on IMDb, it also says that. From 1955 to 1964, he taught drama at Hollywood High School. 
And then from 1964 to 1984, he taught drama at Beverly Hills High. Wow. So he was a drama teacher for nearly 30 years. And then somehow he got into doing movies and television, I think more TV than anything. But then to land a soap. For, oh, my yeah. God. And and during during some years where I was sometimes watching General Hospital because all the people I worked with at Disney at that time in the break room always had it on. Mm -hmm. And I had a roommate who, uh, who, who just loved it. Uh, so I'm sure I saw him. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, that was like, he's like the patriarch of the whole thing. Yeah. So yeah. How cool that he had such a successful career, uh, late in life. Like you said, there's hope for you. There's yeah. hope for both of us. May, huh. may we start, uh, a 29-year yeah. career Absolutely. with 105 credits. Yeah. yeah, right away. But yeah. So we go to the next uh, dissolve to the store. More passage of time. Blair and Nick are still sitting around waiting. And they're playing a game. What's the game, Daryl? Game is Electronic Battleship. Yes! Which I owned. I had. I, I don't know if I had the electronic version. I loved uh, the OG Battleship. The the analog version loved Battleship. Yeah, and and which I know I discovered because I remember seeing the ads for Electronic Battleship, and just thinking that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I must have it. So I'm sure I badgered my family or or dropped huge hints that that was the birthday present I wanted most. Yeah, or maybe it was a Christmas gift. I do know they got it for me, mm -hmm. and when playing it. Within the first two or three games you play with your friends, you get tired of the electronic overlay. You get tired of the specific sound effects. and Really? And novelty is really fun. And then at some point you're like, you know, you could turn that off and we could just play this the old way. Because <laughs> every time you would move something or place a peg, you would hit the button and you'd have to hear the... And you'd either hear or bad um. That's right. And so it was very nostalgic hearing those sound effects here in the episode, but it reminded me that, oh yeah, we kind of got over that because it yeah. slowed the pace of the game down. And once you'd heard them a few times, okay, you're kind of over it. Yeah, because before it was you would literally say you'd you'd give a, a coordinate and your partner on the side would go hit or miss. It's, miss. Yeah. Or or as in the classic OG commercial. You sank my battleship. Yeah. Shh. At the opera. Because you play battleship when you're in a freaking box at the opera. <laughs> That's right. I will find that commercial and I will post it. Man. Yes, yes. But, um, but a, a, a moment of sort of happy nostalgia while simultaneously remembering, yeah, the, the gimmick wore off fast. Huh. Then I, I must not have had it because that sounds like I would have had a similar reaction. I remember we had the old one. I, I guess I never had the electronic one, but um, it seemed like a good idea at the time. It was, you know, it was super exciting for, you yeah. know. Yeah. So then cut from syndication, we do have a moment where somebody leaves the store and we have a check-in. Tootie and Natalie say, three dozen cheesecakes sold, three dozen to go. And the store doesn't close for two more hours. So that's our check-in that we're halfway there. And yep. uh, 
and there's no talk of injured or truncated cheesecakes due to the snafu with right. the boxes. So right. I'm going to assume That's they're true. just boxes. Um, it also gives us an idea of the passage of time during which Nick and Blair have been having the most boring date ever. Ever. True. So then in comes Andy. Now he has graduated from posters to wearing a sandwich board over his shoulders. And you said this was your favorite joke? This was the one I, I, I laughed really loud at the reveal. Oh, the and, reveal. Okay. The front of it is text that says, let Edna show you a little cheesecake. And when Mrs. Garrett complains about that, uh, Andy, again, 10, 11 years old, says, never underestimate sex in the marketplace. Without Paul Newman, that salad dressing is just oil and vinegar. <laughs> and Newman's own salad dressing started in 1982. That was still very new. Yeah, and, and still selling strong. In still going of, strong. In, in spite of Mr. Newman no longer being with us, mm -hmm. his, his sex appeal lives on by uh, a... <laughs> So true. But Tootie uh, absolutely balks at, I'm not putting lumber on my body. Natalie tries to say to her, we'll pretend like it's an acting exercise since you're the actress. And that's a good continuing of the through line of Tootie being an actress. And then uh, finally, they're like, it's your shift. Suck it up. So Andy takes off the sandwich board. Tootie puts it on. And as Tootie turns around to exit the store, tell us what we see on the back. We see a piece of artwork of, of of Edna Garrett's face attached to a pinup body in a swimsuit. Mm -hmm. Yes. Ms. Presumably painted by Andy. Young Andy, yes. Uh, <laughs> he did show some artistic skills when he painted a set piece for Tootie a couple of episodes. I could I could not have I could not have uh, done that skillfully at age eleven. <laughs> I um well I I didn't suck when I was 11 but I'm not sure I could have done it that quickly cuz yes. he got he pulled this together in a very short period of right. time. And and presumably never asked Mrs. Garrett to pose to to you know face model for him. I mean, he could have gone off a photograph maybe. Uh, yeah, or just he knows them so well or whatever. Yeah, yeah but it was very cute this this again this is the B story versus yeah. uh, the A story of Blair and her date. Pretty much wraps up the, the B story. I think that's kind of it for that, isn't uh, it? In the syndicated version? Um, oh, okay. Uh, a little bit, yeah. When they close up the store, Mrs. Garrett says, my feet are killing me. They don't imply whether it was a success or a failure, but the, the non-syndicated version, so the full version that you find on the DVDs, uh, that is where we do have the final moment of, yay, we did it. We sold them all. And, oh, that's um, good. yeah, that is coming up. We will, we will talk about that. It is coming up. Okay. But I, I will, I will let the audience know as soon as, as soon as you turned around and we saw the full reveal of that art on the sandwich board, this is based, this is approximately my reaction. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The two partners. So true. <laughs> So true. Um, so then Blair is getting impatient. She's like, well, we've been waiting half the day here. We're missing everything. Can't you just leave the money with Mrs. Garrett that you're going to be lending this guy? And then um, 
he says, I think he needed to talk to somebody too, you know, for reasons to do with him borrowing the money, etc. And so Blair is like, there's that pushover again. <laughs> and she's just so entranced with how sweet he is. So he says, I'm going to call him again. He goes over to the phone, calls. And while he's on the phone, Kevin and Joe come back. Right. They've already seen the surfing movie. Yes. Um, Joe is wearing a very big uh, 80s overcoat. Um, it's it's kind of weird. It's it's kind of feminine. Yeah. Not not gonna lie. That's 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 very off brand for Joe. <laughs> this this season the costumes have gotten extraordinarily tomboyish. Yes. But as they are overhearing Joe, or rather, but as Joe goes near the phone, is about to walk into the kitchen, she overhears that Nick is talking to somebody saying, yeah, Steve Hartman. I need to talk to Steve Hartman. At which point Joe instantly is like, what the fuck? Yeah. And then she goes to Blair and is like, what's going on? And Blair says, well, he's lending him money, da, da, da. And she's like, Blair, uh, He's the campus connection. He sells cocaine on the Langley campus. If Nick is meeting him, he ain't lending him money. He's probably buying some. Yeah. And then we get the reaction of Blair. In the syndicated version, it just goes to commercial. In the full-length version, we cut to a shot of Nick on the phone. He turns and looks at Blair and gives a wink. Oh, and no. And then it cuts back to Blair re-reacting and <laughs> yeah. god he no, I, is so handsome though god yes i know we we forgive him for whatever whatever it is yeah. but i just so so joe had a moment when she was conveying this information to blair she, she, she tapped her nose at one point mm -hmm. i remember if they turned that into a punchline or if that was just in my own head yeah yeah she says uh nick isn't lending him money he's not in trouble that way. And she says, there's only one kind of trouble that guy could be in. Tap, tap on the nose. And Blair goes, sinus trouble? That's it. So I I didn't dream it. That actually happened. Okay. Yeah, that was funny. That's pretty funny. It is pretty good. Yep. Yes. So then this is where we go to commercial. And uh, I know in the past, era we've talked about you and your life and your career as a writer, as a performer, as a musician, as an Imagineer. Um, but I'm just curious, this would be a good time for us to do a little touch base and talk about what precipitated your relocation to Albuquerque and uh, what are you doing to get you through the pandemic? Yeah, those are excellent questions. Well, first of all, um, I would say for the last five or six years, I've been feeling a kind of a pull. This I was born here. This is my state of origin, my town of origin. And, you know, a lot of, not all, but a lot of my early childhood and schooling happened here, minus two years that we were in Maitland, Florida. So, so here's the thing. I'm sort of a New Mexico kid, but then for two years, 1972 and 73, we moved to the Orlando area, and I, little seven and eight-year-old Daryl, go to Disney World. Uh -huh. And then we move back to New Mexico. And I spend all of my grade school and high school years going, I want to be at Disney World. So, <laughs> simplifying it, but that, 
eventually in 1989, I just decided that none of my other options were working out. And I just decided to kind of go for it to say, I'm going to go to Orlando and see if I can just become something within the Disney organization. I was just a pixie dusted Disney nerd at that time. So 31 years later, three decades and some change of really pretty remarkable experience, varied experience, lots and lots of things mm -hmm. that I got to do or learned people I got to meet. Um, all great. But I had been feeling a discontentment for quite some time, part of which was, uh, uh, and I think this happens, um, the the nature of the theme park business uh, is on one hand kind of stressful and on another hand, the kind of creativity that you're working on is sort of polished and shiny, but it's also kind of superficial. Mm -hmm. It helped that I wasn't getting as much consulting work by quite a lot. Uh, and I was feeling this draw to kind of come back to my places of origin and pursue other avenues of both how to make a living and let my creativity ramble off in some non-theme park directions, which I already did while there. I did that kind of on the side. I wrote novels and I wrote plays that weren't related to my career. Honestly, when we got to the horrific day this last year when tens of thousands of layoffs occurred in Disney and elsewhere, it's like a little flip switched in my head and said, time to go. It's just mm -hmm. time to go see what can happen I have family here. I have friends here I've known for a long time. So I have a safety net here. I had somewhere to land and somewhere to live. And so I just thought it's going to take a lot of time before the types of opportunities I had out there will be back. And maybe I'm okay if I don't. That said, I mean, it was absolutely the right move to make that I've gotten all kinds of, you know, signals from <laughs> the universe or wherever else that it was the right time to do it. And it was the right move to make, which doesn't mean I know exactly where my forward trajectory goes from here. But uh, I think the, uh, the getting away and having a very different environment had a very different view out my window. And you said you had yeah. some other consulting and uh, freelance work that's been well, sustaining so, you in that time anyway. Yeah, so the nice thing that worked out about it was that already for quite some time now, um, I've been consult. I've been getting consulting work with a firm in Orlando that I used to be full time with. It's all made up of former Imagineers and former theme park designers and such. And so, uh, when I arrived here, I had a full plate of carryover consulting work since I was already exclusively dealing with them via Zoom meetings and and remotely. It just didn't make any difference from a work perspective. Um, now, I published a novel last July. Audiobook version of it is upcoming. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> It'll be me. This is <laughs> reading you an exciting thriller story. Um, I am working very hard to complete a full two-act musical with some colleagues of mine who we are now in three different states. Uh, uh, one of us is still in Florida. Uh, the other is now in Ohio, and I'm here in New Mexico. But we are wow. continuing on a a uh, full-length two-act musical uh, based on the Daniel Defoe novel, Mall Flanders. Oh, okay. Then on top of that, 
I hope this works out. I I intend to launch a YouTube channel fairly oh. soon. You know, before the world went crazy, I was occasionally giving workshops and lectures uh, at places like Savannah College of Art and Design or uh, Central Florida University and some places around town, some organizations around town, your town, where I basically talked about what does storytelling mean in the theme park world? What does it mean to be a storyteller who creates story for placemaking, for immersive experiences that you go pay a lot of money to experience? Uh, And the ones I gave were very well received, but once I was here, I sort of thought, um, I think there's a way to take this content that I've worked on for some years that people seem to really enjoy and uh, just find a home for it online because it might be a long time before I could go stand in a room with a lot of students and do Mm -hmm. the person-to-person kind of workshop. So what if I took some of my content, which I think is just inherently pretty entertaining. I don't think that there is yet an existing YouTube channel that is hosted by a bona fide former Imagineer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you have a a niche expertise there, and right. and so many people are so obsessed with the theme parks and yeah. how they achieve what they achieve, and on the the process and peeking behind the curtain, as it were. So, well, I'm glad to have you back. It sucked that you had to uh, relocate and not be in a location nearby, but that's why. That's why the Zoom is a wonderful thing. We can keep in touch here. You can still do the podcast. And uh, and we can figure out what is going to happen with Blair and this uh, terrible conundrum of, is her boyfriend buying drugs? So when we come back from the commercial, we are literally in the middle of the conversation where Blair is talking to Joe saying, this must be a misunderstanding. No, 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 type of a thing. But we come back, suddenly there are a half a dozen customers in the store that were not there just before we went to commercial. It's very weird. (laughs) Um, But, oh, television. (laughs) Yep. And uh, at this point, we can kind of move fairly quickly through the episode in terms of uh, Blair smartly confronts him right away and says, so who is this Steve Hartman guy? And uh, word on the street is that he's a drug person. What's up with that? So Nick fesses up and says, yeah, I'm making a buy from him. I didn't want to get you involved. That's why I've been doing all this other stuff. And I don't know why he's running so late, but I need to do it. So I was going to say, that is the point at which I kind of admired the fact that you could easily see in a sitcom where they would have had him continue to make up more lies and string her along and not really tell the truth until the very end of the episode. But I was kind of happy when he just came out and said, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Joe Joe told you right. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, so true. And then Blair, who is uh, upset, she goes back to the house and we end up in the living room now. And she says to him, well, all this this bullshit about the class notes and then the borrowing money and all that stuff, all the lies. What else have you been lying to me about? And he comes out and says, look, you're condemning me, but you don't know anything about this. I have my reasons. We've been dating for the last three months. You know who I am. But Blair comes back with the typical sitcom, well, I thought I knew who you were. And it just comes down to he 
is to him he's using cocaine as a tool to maintain his GPA, to keep up with his commitments to the football team, being on the track team, uh, writing for the student paper, being in the student government, how he can't let his parents down, he can't let the school down. And he says to her, and trying to make a future, and I don't want to let you down. And he makes a good case. He does. And Blair is not, she's like, oh, am I supposed to feel sympathy for you right now? Do you have it? So there is a sense of, oh, poor little rich boy. Got too much going on. Oh. I was impressed by this because, uh, again, that was getting to something that's pretty real, that uh, the expectations that can be placed on young people to excel academically and then to do every other thing. So, for example, one of the most interesting projects that I got to help out with over the last several years was interviewing people at the United States Air Force Academy up in Colorado Springs and talk to both people who'd been around at that institution for a long time and people who are cadets right now. And one of the things we talked about was just to be a candidate to, you know, to attempt to be enrolled, you have to be kind of that level in your high school, you have to be not just great grades, not just super athletic, but then doing all of the extracurricular stuff, uh, participating in all sorts of whatever charitable things. You have to be super person mm-hmm. to even get, and then you have to be recommended by a congressperson. So you have to achieve that. So some of the young people I talked to who were in their first or second year, they talked about that exact thing. One of them was honest enough to say, there's a lot of drug use that happens for people, for kids that just feel like, what choice do I have? I need to, I need to stay on it until I'm done. Mm-hmm. And so that justification is, you know, it's, that's very authentic for that for him to take that, or for the for the writers to say, okay, well, let's acknowledge that this is why it happens. Mm-hmm. But I'm equally impressed by kind of what gets asked of him next. Yeah, and I don't remember how she phrases it, but it's essentially a thing of of okay that you feel like you have to do this to keep up with your work but it's not like you're doing it for fun and then he's you know he's sort of like well yeah i mean yeah i do like it <laughs> yeah Again, but he says I, that's not why i do it why i do it but as a side benefit yeah mm-hmm. that's uh and i thought for an 80s sitcom that was a little surprising yeah kind of an admission that i wouldn't quite have expected at that time in tv writing oh sure yeah and and the thing of this the the sort of nugget that they do get to is where he says i know other people who go and on and go overboard with it and have trouble and problems with it not me no i'm it's basically him saying i've got a handle on this i'm using it in a controlled way where i'm not going to let this get away from me And Blair does smartly say, come on, really? Yeah, at this point, my only criticism of the episode is just that on a couple of occasions, I believe it's Blair who has a line or two where she uses the term doing drugs Mm -hmm. in a a more general sense. Because this is the just say no campaign with, you know, Nancy Reagan and all that stuff. So the idea is, you know, Mr. Mackey, you know, drugs are bad, okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're just patently across the board my is doing drugs and part of it was to be like you know girl you ever have a sip of champagne you've done drugs too it's like the generality of this is the episode about drugs 
I'm glad that they did hone in on cocaine and did use it. I think ultimately <laughs> this is a this is a credit and a thumbs up that yes. it would have been bad if it was uh, yeah, he sells drugs and I'm going to buy some drugs. What do you mean? What do you use the drugs for? I'm glad that they were specific about it and didn't get into the generality of like, like the last time you were, you were here, the uh, abortion that was never, ever described what, an, <laughs> what, what was it? We wanted the episode to end with like Tootie just going, Mrs. Garrett, what's an abortion? Yeah, right. Roll credits. I mean, all up in arms and ready to yeah. fire now from this, you know, uh, paper and all that. Anyway, that was, uh, yeah. So, no, I thought, yeah, for a primetime show at that time, that was pretty, I like that it was specific to why a lot of people that age would have been doing that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, that certainly in my own, uh, work experience in sometimes uh, high stress, high expectation industries, uh, you become aware that a lot of people do rely on that, mm-hmm. especially especially in their twenties and thirties. Though you know, it goes on, I I am told, <laughs> <laughs> and that it is mostly it is not primarily a recreational thing. At some point, that just becomes a you know. There's the massive expectations that are placed on me to keep this job or, uh, you know, so what I'm getting at is I blame capitalism. Yeah. God damn it. That's the problem. It always <laughs> is. Um, but Nick's last word is I'll be okay as long as we're okay. Does this change things? And Blair says, I don't know. And then someone comes in and says, uh, Nick, there's a phone call for you. And he jumps up, like he doesn't even look at Blair. He jumps up. So they're trying to draw this thing of, it is the most important thing right now. It's already kind of starting a little bit. Just this whole him meeting Steve, him yep. waiting, holding up Blair and making her wait and stuff. They're, they're trying to allude to that. And I like that because when he ran, when he jumps up, he did stop himself and look back at her. And she does give him a, are you fucking kidding me? Look. Absolutely. So, uh, so I, I, I'll interject here something that happened. I think twice, I think once at the shop. So, I think there were two times that that Edna pokes her head back in during their conversation. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, because it's some of the very few things that she had been given to do. Yeah. She enters the scene with a very intent look on her face. There's a lot of intentionality in her entrance, which caused me to expect that she had been overhearing what they were saying and she was about to come out and say, we've got to talk about this, guys. Oh, no. Oh, no. no. Oh, no. Utterly oblivious and just came out and was said some kind of nothing, passing something, went away. And so after that happened twice, I was just like, Oh, poor Charlotte Ray. <laughs> she was handed nothing to do. Yeah. Yeah. She had a big episode last week, but this week we're kind of back to Mrs. Garrett being extraneous in her own show. Very. And, and to the point where either of those entrances could have not happened at all. and It would have affected nothing. It might have even 
been better for her. <laughs> yeah, they could have because of the things that are omitted for the syndicated version. This next bit is one of those things where it's like, I think we could have, should have made a more, made more of an effort to keep this in because we do have a point where we come back to the store and it's, yay, we sold the last of the cheesecakes. Woohoo! Terrific. They all gather around the table. Andy, get the calculator. All right. And this is where they start doing the math. And she says, we sold them at $2.50 a piece. So for some reason, they sold the cakes at a $4 loss a piece. They state explicitly they made $180. Plus they sold some other stuff and then the cost of preparation, blah, blah, blah. blah. We did it. And we have a final net profit of $5. Mm. Tootie is understandably mad that she had to walk around wearing that sandwich board for such a little amount of profit. Um, Natalie does say the important thing is we didn't lose. And right. so then... Illogically, Mrs. Garrett goes over to the register and pulls out money and starts splitting the five dollars. Says, "Here, well, here's your dollar sixty-five. Here's your dollar sixty-five. I'm like, wait, what? No, what? That's profit for the store. Why the fuck are you giving them? They work <laughs> for you. What is happening? <laughs> I did not get to see that, but that no. was. And and maybe and that might be for the better because it was um, it was unsatisfying. I know I just said, well, they should have kept this in only for the sake of it did close up that loop of the story. Right. We omitted that they got halfway there, halfway through the episode, and we omitted that they achieved the goal. Right. So yes, that would have that would have felt uh, like a better rounded structure at least. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so I will say that as you know, as there as the conversation between Blair and Nick goes on, um, I then started to think there it must be really significant that uh, that Nick has repeatedly tried to get his friend on the phone, tried to make this exchange happen, and I started thinking, well, something had to have gone wrong. Like if this guy is the school's drug connection. Uh, and Nick has presumably bought from him before. The the long wait made me start thinking this must be a plot point, like he got arrested or he's dead, and we're going to find that out, and that's oh. going to be, and that's going to become the shock for Nick to go, oh my god, this is more serious than I was taking it. Uh, that's what I was waiting for. We were denied any kind of conclusion like that. Yeah. Uh, which left me at the end of the episode wondering, first of all, did they follow up on this? Well, no, Nick is never back, I think is what you told me. No, Nick never comes back. And uh, and I guess jumping to the end a little bit, I mean, it ends with Nick still standing outside on the other side of the window going, no, oh, still yeah. not here. Yeah. And I need a hit, man. I need to get that coat, man. I gotta, can't come down off of this high, man. And it was, so it was a kind of an understated ending, but it did make me wonder, yeah, will there be a follow-up and we find out, I mean, we're going to find out that his friend like got in trouble, right? Or or I guess I wanted an answer to why the long delay, as opposed to, I don't know, I think you could have had a similar episode where he leaves long enough to go make the transaction and comes back and talks about, I don't know, I guess I had this self-imposed suspense about, well, where is the guy? Why is he late? <laughs> yeah. The writer 
the writers weren't interested in that question. Yeah, this is that thing where uh, I, I totally I agree with all of that. And this is that thing where oftentimes, particularly in these Norman Lear sitcoms and the Facts of Life has done this, where they deliberately like to leave a sort of a dangling, open-ended ending to the thing. It's like, um, you know, Tootie's brother drove drunk and they he wrecked the car and they've got to tell the parents. Well, instead of the conversation with the parents, it's the, are you going to make the phone call? Yeah, I'm here for you. And he picks up the phone. Right. Uh, but you don't know what happens after that, but you have to assume, infer, project. It's it's called uh, the writers making the viewer finish the writing for them. <laughs> for them, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like you just did, and I'm doing every week here. <laughs> but the thing is, uh, yes, the episode does end on a sort of ambiguity as far as the drug situation, as far as Nick and his future and all that. But the real struggle after they've all cleared up this money and cheesecake thing is that Joe and Blair do have some words, and Joe has words directly with Nick also, particularly about growing up. Again, Joe is the girl from the Bronx. She's always got the streetwise input. So guys I grew up with, always fooling around, but thinking it would never catch up with them. Only they didn't have little alligators on their shirts. Right. And uh, so, but with the back and forth, Joe kind of trying to fortify her girlfriend and defend her girlfriend, Blair. And before she leaves, Joe does give the great line, Blair, you know where I am if you get tired of waiting around for a man to satisfy you, is I think what he implied. <laughs> That's right. Implied. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> it boils down to Blair, we're done. We've worked our day. You close up the shop. So Blair's like, okay, I'm going to close up. And he's like, no, 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 wait, my friend's coming. And it has to happen inside the shop here. I can't do it outside for some reason. Right. And Blair <laughs> is like, if something happened or you got caught here, Mrs. Garrett's shop could be dragged. Yeah into something illegal and be prosecuted and all that. You, you know, you're putting so many people at risk, me and my friends. So um, essentially without throwing him out, Blair throws him out. She's like, right. this is not happening here. I'm closing up the shop. Yep. So she locks up, turns off the lights. And so the shop is in darkness, but lit outside by the street lights we don't see is Nick pacing around uh, impatiently you know, maybe he's he's needing a fix at this point, but uh, it's him pacing and then they don't freeze frame. We just see him pacing and they roll the credits over that. So the assumption is that the journey here is Blair's journey of this guy is great. The audience sees how great it is, uh, how great he is. He does this one thing. Is that something one could or should overlook? And Blair's made the choice that um i think most of us would make maybe or not but yeah she says no it would be different if it was pot but that's a whole other thing because in the 80s pot had such a different reputation <laughs> oh and, different yeah and a thing nowadays you meet somebody it's like um i smoke weed and it's like yeah okay you you and my grandma yeah exactly <laughs> well we are at the end of another journey here, another very special episode. Yes. Drugs are bad. And don't you forget it, young people watching 
this episode of the facts of life though, though i will say i was i was surprised at relatively speaking how much nuance they permitted given given the era and the style that this sort of sitcom generally would would hand you so yeah a little, be- a little better than i expected yeah i i would agree i think the cheesecake um i wish the numbers <laughs> checked out a little bit better um and it would have been okay if they had just said, hey, we didn't lose money. That's the important thing. Yeah, That right. would have been a great button to that whole bit. But I think that the argument, they make a valid argument. It seemed to be a valid argument. And you've just told us that it is. You've interviewed people who would absolutely verify that. Yeah, That's uh, pretty cool. So, no, I, <laughs> I like this one. Drugs are this- a trip, man. You should not use them. That is a, that is a trap. It's terrible. Uh, I'm going to go and have a gigantic cup of coffee now (laughs) to keep me awake so I can edit this and get it to post in time. Because, you know, my podcasting schedule, Daryl, little crazy. little crazy. I was going to say, if chocolate is a drug, lock me up. Oh, tell me about it. Oh, my God. (laughs) That is, yeah, that's, that's truly, food is my drug of choice. And at the top of that would definitely be chocolate. So, well, continue to do well in Albuquerque. As I said, we hate to lose you, but I'm very happy to know that you're thriving and doing well. And do not be a stranger. We will definitely have you back on the show. Smooches, my dear, and goodbye. Farewell. And there you have it. That was Daryl Pickett. I will post links to his website where you can find information about all of the projects he's working on and will be working on, including his recently published book, the upcoming audio version, his fringe show that he hopes to bring back to Orlando that sadly didn't happen because of COVID, uh, information about his Mall Flanders musical, and his upcoming YouTube channel with his lectures about storytelling and being an Imagineer. Next week, I'm going to be watching Season 6, Episode 19, Gone with the Wind, Part 1. You heard that right, Part 1. That means it's a two-parter. And when I have a two-parter, usually that means it's a two-arter. I'm bringing Matthew back. Matthew Arter will be here for all the fun and hilarity. And we will do it over the next two weeks. So double your pleasure, double your fun. I cannot wait. You can watch the episode ahead of time at dailymotion.com for free. I will post the link in the show notes and on this episode's webpage. And that is it, guys. That's all. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to this week's show. And remember, the facts of life are all about you. Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, David Almeida. My theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Visit my website, facethefactspod.com, for supplemental photos and videos, audio extras from the digital cutting room floor, links to my social media, and ways that you can support the show financially. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever fine podcasts are found. Tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts.